this is Head Speaks, a proud member of the Headcast Network family of shows. As usual, I am your host, Aaron Moss, a.k.a. Brother Head. And this is my, well, mostly monthly Headcast, where I talk about comics, movies, role-playing games, TV shows, and anything else geeky that I want. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I manage to con a guest onto the show. So if you like comic books like Firestorm and The Atom, or movies like Back to the Future, or even the Star Wars sequels, uh, or anything else geeky, this, this is the place for you. So let's get the flux capacitor fluxing, the TARDIS tarting, and let's say Shazam! On with this episode of Head Speaks. that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Hey, dear listeners, Brother Head coming at you. This is Head Speaks, episode 69, dudes! And once again, I'm in the Headcast studios alone. I decided not to bring Chad on board. I did, he seemed a little interested in the power of the atom, but since this show is called Head Speaks, it's mostly my thoughts on it. And I don't mind having an occasional guest. I enjoy that. But I, I don't know if he's going to work out on here. So Chad went back over to the Lantern Cast. So definitely check out thelanterncast.com. Uh, Chad's a great guy, uh, even though I don't know if I agree with some of his opinions, especially on Starman, but that's another story entirely. We'll talk about that over there. But yeah, no, it was definitely good having Chad around for an episode. But let's get back to Brotherhead voicing his opinion on Head Speaks. So first up this episode. What's in Head Longbox? Dedicated to truth, justice, and peace for all mankind. The world's greatest super friends. So, once again, we're going to continue our, our dive into Power of the Atom. This is issue 10. So, this was cover dated March of 1989, but on sale January the 31st of 1989. Cover price is $1.00. The editor of this was, again, Mike Carlin. The title of the story was called Bah Humbug. The writer was Roger Stern. Penciler, Graham Nolan. Inker, Steve Keith Stan Wilson. Letterer, Albert Tobias de Guzman. Colorist, Nancy Houlihan. The cover was done by Graham Nolan and Keith Wilson. And again, from Wikipedia, the synopsis is that a superpowered mercenary is hired to attack the Atom. The mercenary follows Ray Palmer and learns the schedule. When Ray is set to meet with a book publisher, Humbug ambushes him. What's not a problem with that word? They fight in the office of the publisher until the Atom gets the upper hand. Humbug then vanishes, leaving behind an empty-bodied, shaped skin. Just a quick synopsis. Again, I I do these on and off. I've had people suggest I don't do them because the way I I review these books, I actually, if you've been listening to me anyways, uh, I actually kind of do a synopsis, or I, I talk about the issues, I go through it. So anyways, but I decided to read that one this time. Uh, again, it's the way my head works sometimes. 
But let's go ahead and actually talk about this issue of Power of the Atom. So our cover starts out with the Atom. He's on his knees, his hand is on his head, like he's really confused or uh, suffering a mental breakdown is almost what it looks like. Uh, we have our logo, Power of the Atom. Below that it says, who is, what is, humbug. And the rest of the cover, the background's green with uh, images of humbug all around the Atom, a bunch of question marks. Uh, it's an interesting cover. When I think of the Atom, I, this is what I do think of. I, I do like it. What I hang on the wall as a poster? Probably not, but it's an enjoyable cover. And it kind of tells us sort of what's going on in this issue. I mean, Ray's not as confused or as lost as he appears on this cover, but it does give the, the what the heck of Humbug. So it's a good cover, in my opinion. For the story itself, we start out with Humbug sitting in a chair on a giant round, I don't know if it's a globe or a... A giant round screen. I want to say it looks like almost like a globe or like a crystal ball, if you will. We see a close up, a bust shot of the atom and he's talking to somebody. Well, actually, at this point, someone's talking to him, basically hiring him to uh, go after the atom. And I like this is the guy's the voice is talking. It's like this is your new assignment, humbug. Raymond Palmer, doctor of physics, formerly of Ivy University, though he's better known in the guise as the atom. And Humbug's like, you move after a superhero. Hmm, tell me more. <laughs> and so as this nameless voice, bodiless voice, uh, however you want to phrase it, is talking to Humbug, we see the Atom fighting a guy in a metal suit while the voice behind him is giving, basically catching everyone up. If, if you're this is your first time reading the Atom, it's letting you know what's going on. Is that, you know, some years ago, he discovered a way to reduce his mass and volume. He became a superhero. And then 18 months ago, following the wreck of his marriage, he disappeared. He wrote a book about his double life. And then he disappeared from sight. And six weeks ago, he reappeared. So it's basically telling us that the last nine issues has all happened in a six-week time frame. So I do like that this is actually giving us some sort of a time frame for how everything's worked, because we know that 18 months ago is when the first Sword of the Atom special came out, as far as continuity-wise, and then six weeks ago is when the first issue happened, or second issue of this series happened. So it kind of lays it out and gives us a time frame. And, and I like I do like when it gives us some, in quotes, real-world time frames to work with. Uh, so again, as the voice continues talking... Uh, explaining that, you know, he's very independent and, you know, the, the uh, CIA and the Justice League has both approached him and he's turned him down. Humbug's watching the Atom fight, watching his fight moves, you know, punching and kicking and stuff. And Humbug's duplicating it exactly. Uh, Humbug at this point, uh, just from this this page, page two, to me, is very reminiscent of, I think it's the Taskmaster. Masker? Taskmaster over at Marvel. He can see what someone does and he can duplicate their moves exactly. So uh, it's an interesting concept to begin with. And as he's doing, the, you know, practicing these moves and the voice in the background's talking, he's like, you know, however, our studies indicate that he is very independent. Humbug, we'd appreciate if you would at least give us a modem core of your attention. He's like, I haven't missed a single disembodied syllable. You were saying that Palmer is very independent. And again, the voice goes on that you know, he's worked with others before, such as the old Justice League, but he's not what they would call a good team player. 
And as Humbug's listening to this voice, he's looking around. Apparently, he's he's recently moved into this, this residence he's in because there's a pipeline on the ground. He's mentioning, oh, plumbers always leave in place a mess. <laughs> the voice is like, Humbug, nothing, go on. And as he, he's listening, Humbug pulls off his glasses and we see he's got a fake nose. And so his face, we see he's got, we just, I haven't really described his face. At this point, his face is just a, it's an average looking, plain looking face, I guess, except for he's got no nose, uh, kind of reminiscent of Voldemort from Harry Potter, but even less. I mean, it's just a flat surface. He's got white eyes of no pupils. His eyebrows go kind of up in a sinister mode, and he's got like a kind of a jokerish grin. So, and as he's talking, you know, the, the voices are reminding him or telling him that the Atom is very powerful and very resourceful and not to underestimate him. And Humbug's like, uh, the Atom has some good moves, but I can handle anything he dishes out. And he picks up the, the pipe he was talking about earlier that he noticed, and he bends it in half. So at this point, we know he's super strong. He can copy other people's fight moves, it looks like, and he has no nose. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I do like this introduction. This is our first appearance of Gum, hum, Gumbug. Humbug. Uh, this is first appearance anywhere as a new character. So I do like the way we're getting introduced. We're getting a little bit of what he can do. That You know, again, uh, I've already outlined his abilities that we know so far. But I, So I do like that we're, we're giving... I think a good introduction to Humbug. And the voice also talks about how he's recently fought an alien invasion. He went up against Kronos and defeated his death traps that were laid out for him. And here's where they mention that, you know, the CIA has been shadowing Ray and his friends. And so so we know that whoever this voice is talking to Humbug is apparently not the CIA. It may be some other government entity. We don't know at this point, but it's not the CIA. So, and so Humbug's like, the CIA... This has become much more interesting. Where's Palmer now? We're told that he's hanging out with Emeritus Alphys V. Hyatt, a college professor, used to be one of Ray's college mentors, uh, and he has a small laboratory behind his home on Ivy Town's East Hill. And I, I like this transition as we cut over to Professor Hyatt's house. We have a nice outside view of it, and from behind the house we see 76, 77, 78. And here we get our title sequence, Bah Humbug. A reference to A Christmas Carol's, you know, Scrooge, Bah Humbug. Uh, I'm not sure if that's where the character came from anyway, or I'm not sure how tied the, the origins of the idea, I guess, of this character is to that, or if it's just a neat story idea. I'm not quite sure. But we have Ray's in just a pair of shorts and, and shoes, tennis shoes. Doing one-handed push-ups, 79, 80, 81, 82. And Enrique's telling him, well, be careful. You don't want to overdo it. Yeah, don't worry, Ricky. It's 87, 88. I could do this all day. 80, 92, 93. Just a few more reps. 99 or 97. And I'll quit. 99, 100. And done. He's, you know, he's, as he's doing these one-handed push-ups, his arm behind his back, uh, he's turned to a side of it so he can look at Enrique and he's smiling as he's doing these push-ups. As he, he flips himself back up on his feet. And Enrique is kind of impressed. He's like, she's like, 100, one, 100 one-handed push-ups on each side, and you're barely perspiring. You're amazing. <laughs> and Ray admits here that, yeah, not really. Anyone reasonably reasonable shape could do the same, especially if they could mentally decrease their mass and weight. <laughs> so it sounds like he's decreased his mass and weight to do the push-ups. I love Ray, don't get me wrong, but I think that may be cheating. I, I don't know if you reduce your weight down to nothing, if doing 100 push-ups are really going to help. Again, I'm 
if you see me, I'm an overweight guy. I'm not big into push-ups, so maybe I'm wrong. But I, I think part of the the uh, benefit or some of the, the effect of the push-up is pushing your weight up. So if you don't weigh anything, you're just going up and down on, with no weight. I, I don't know if that's really helping anything. Uh, if anyone out there is into weightlifting or uh, into bodybuilding or push-ups and knows that I'm wrong please let me know. But that's just my own thoughts on it. And again, as after they get done talking, Ray changes into the Adam costume. And at this point, he's off screen doing it. In one panel, we see him in his shorts and his tennis shoes with a towel around his neck. And he says he's going to change. And uh, Enrica tells him to change his work clothes. He says, only promise not to peek. And Enrica kind of closes her eyes and, oh, Ray, oh, you, you, know, you silly goose. And Ray turns into... The atom, and here we're seeing a blinding light. I'm saying it's a blinding light because Professor Hyatt's also got his eyes kind of squinting. And Reagan explains easy as we're going through, as we talked about last issue, this story appears to be good jumping on point because we got kind of Ray's origins and history earlier. Now he's talking about his powers, how he can just thank himself in his costume. He can thank himself, he can thank, and his costume just appears. And that's the white dwarf matter doing most of the work. Otherwise, it's tucked into it. So again, it, it kind of explains everything about Ray in this book. So if this was your your first issue, you're like, oh, okay, that's that's his origin. That's how it works. Okay, it makes a little more sense. And they also mentioned that you know there is the visible emissions, which is the light that accompanies the transfer. And Enrica says, you know, what well, doesn't happen all the time. And he's like, do you need to why? And he's like, you know, I've never never really thought about it. <laughs> And Enrique's wondering if it's an emotional response. And I like the way this plays out. Uh, he's standing in front of Enrique and, and uh, Professor Hyde on a stand. And they're attaching some some monitors to his chest, to his costume. And as they're talking, uh, Ray's you know, saying, well, I've never really thought about it before. And as she touches the, the hooks the thing up to him, he kind of giggles. <laughs> and he, she's like, perhaps it's an emotional response. No, I've always been ticklish there. <laughs> so I, I do, and she's like, no, I'm talking about the light display, you moron. <laughs> so I, I do like the way that Roger wrote the dialogue in this. I, I, it's the, you know, it shows that these three are friends and, and there's this nappy, you know, back and forth dialogue and the joking around. And very relatable. Because again, when I'm with my friends, we talk a lot like this. We make the jokes and... uh always goofing. So I do like the dialogue in here. I think it's fantastic. And about this time, Norman Brawler, uh, Ray's friend, the one that helped write the book. Actually, yeah, the book when he left, he shows up and Norman's telling him that he's got a deal in New York with Warner Books for a second book, as he's talked about before. And so he's flying to New York. He wants Ray to fly with him to talk about, you know, uh, putting the book in paperback and which will eventually lead to a second book. And Ray's like, oh, hold on, I don't know if I want to see the book in paperback. The hardcover's already complicated my life. He's like, if we hadn't written that book, I'd sell my secret identity. He's like, but you don't. We did, you don't. And you won't lose anything else by letting a larger audience read about it. You, know, you yourself joked about writing another book. And he's like, look, Warner wants a few chapters of new material for this edition. We felt the fire that killed your jungle friends. It might wake people up to the dangers of slash and burning clearing. And both Enrique and the professor's like, well, she, Enrique's like, well, he has a point, Ray. And the professor's like, and the money could help fund our research. So they're both kind of talking him into it. And so Ray agrees to it. And he's like, you go ahead and go talk to him. When you're ready, give me a call and I'll travel my own way. He's like, I go to waste valuable time, valuable time in transit. 
I'd rather spend it here working with my partners. <laughs> Norman, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing at what's coming up. Uh, Norman's like, oh, you're going to go to research together? And the professor's like, well, I know, my boy. We're going on tour. And they start singing, by the light, not the dark, but the light of the silvery moon. And they bust, just bust up laughing. I love this here on uh, page nine. Uh, Norman's calling it says, Weisenheimers. Is Enrique and Ray and the Professor Hyde are all just busting up laughing at their little joke. And again, I, I love, I, and I keep saying it, but it's true. I think Roger did a great job on writing the, these people as real, or writing these characters as real people. Uh, it makes you care about them. He shows that there's a humorous side to them. I just think it's fantastic. I, I love the work on here. And then we cut to several blocks away where we have the CIA basically listening in on Ray and his friends. I guess actually he's uh, they're tapping his phone because they're listening to Norman contact uh, New York to make an appointment with the publisher for him and Ray. And as they're listening to Ray and Norman, they're being, I guess, listened to by Humbug, who's actually also imitating. He, he's intercepted their transmission to their boss. And he's, you know, Bailey here. What's it? Huh? New York say, huh? Good work, Field. Good work, Fields. Time to close up the shop. And Fields, one of the CIA guys, close up. Are you sure, sir? Of course I'm sure. You two fly to Salt Lake City. Check in a travel lodge and wait for their orders. Got that? Uh, yes, sir. Good. <laughs> and after he hangs up the phone, Humbug's like, have a good time in Utah, boys. I'll give you regards to Broadway. <laughs> Central Intelligence. Nah. What a couple of oxymorons. <laughs> so I, I do love the fact that we, we do have Humbug showing. Again, he, he's not only strong and able to copy other people's moves, but he's also very smart and he can apparently imitate people because I'm assuming they thought they were talking to their boss, Bailey, and I would assume they've talked to him before so they would know to an extent what he sounds like and Humbug's able to duplicate that. So, and I don't know much if it's is Humbug himself or how much of it's his phone because he's, he hangs up, he's got his handset there's like two wires coming out of it, and there's extra wires going into the phone. So I'm not sure how much of that is just that that connection there is allowing him just to tap into the phone and make himself seem like he's talking. They're talking to the CIA headquarters, or if any of that is also helping with the the voice impersonation. I'm not sure at this point where that's coming from. Is that a power of his, or is that tied into the the phone contraption he got that he got that he has? It's interesting. I don't know. Uh, but then moving on. We go to Paul Hoban and Gene Loring's, uh, I guess it's their law office. Yeah, it says their law office where they're talking. And again, they're kind of having a, uh, I guess, an argument because Paul's looking something up and Gene's, well, you're in the wrong volume. And they're kind of arguing about the law. Then it comes out that Paul's upset that he saw Gene and Ray hugging, as we talked about when I talked about last episode with Chad, where Paul caught him and Gene hugging. And she's like, well, I told you we're grieving the deaths of Princess Wyatha and her people. It's never been easy for Ray to express his grief. All he said, let himself cry until, and Paul just cuts her off. Let's just drop it, okay? So, again, we can tell this something. Paul is jealous of Ray. And, again, as I've talked about before, especially during when it happened during the first sort of the Adam special, or, uh, yeah, special, I believe it was, or was it the miniseries? No, the miniseries. When Paul was cheating with Gene, I guess Gene was cheating on Paul. Try that again. Gene was cheating on Ray with Paul. So I haven't liked Paul since his introduction because of that whole indiscretion, I guess we'll call it, 
I was going to say fiasco. I think indiscretion is a better word. But yeah, so if this was anyone else, I might feel a little bad for Paul. But seeing how he came on the scene and how he was part of the catalyst for Ray and Gene's uh, divorce. Again, he's not entirely at fault. It's uh, on Gene and Ray. I would say, and again, from my own personal thoughts on it, it's mostly on Gene. Because again, as I've said before, if you're unhappy in your marriage, you don't step out on your partner. You have a discussion. And if you can't work it out, you leave. You don't cheat on them behind their back for them to find out watching you, you know, make out with your boyfriend in your car in the driveway when it's pouring down rain. Again, as I said, that's that image of Ray watching Gene and Paul make out and the rain pouring down is, I don't want to say scarred me per se, but it's a left an imprint on me. So, uh, as I've said, so anyways, but we're not talking about that incident at this point. Got hiccups. We're talking about their current situation where he believes that Gene and Ray have got something going on, which... As I was saying, it's kind of funny seeing how... Anyway, never mind. I'm starting to drift back to that. So we got to New York two days later. New York City. This stuff's made in New York City? New York City! Get a rope. Sorry, just had to throw that in there. But anyways, in New York, uh, the cab driver's dropping Norman off, and he's like, here you are, Mac. That'll be $13.65. Norman's like, can I get a receipt for this for, you know, tax purposes? And... As the Norman starts to walk away, looking, you know, he's looking at Warner Books on the tenth floor. The the cab driver's like, I know how important it is to keep track of things. Hmm. And if you look, the first page we see him in where he's getting dropped off, his he's in the shadows. You can't really see who the cab driver is. But then if you if you pay attention, you can see here that the cab driver is humbug. Because again, he's got that and he's, he's bald, he's got the glasses on. You can tell he's got that that Joker's grin. And then we got to the tenth floor where Norman's meeting with Mr. Griswold from Warner Books, kind of talking things out. And we have a window washer outside. And again, we can't really see much of him now. But as Norman asks, you know, to use his phone so we can call Ray, we see the close-up to the window washer. He's got a cap on. And again, it's, it's not super clear because, again, as I said, with his glasses and nose on, he's kind of indistinguishable. But we can tell that this is... Humbug cleaning the window. So, again, it leaves you question, well, does he have super speed or how did he get up here so quickly and change from the cab driver to the window washer of Schnitzler window cleaners? Uh, so it leaves some questions here as to what's going on. And because, you know, this humbug, for one, it resembles him here. And it's also he's listening into the conversation between Norman and uh, Griswold. And then we cut over to Professor Hyatt and Enrica getting Ray ready to go over. And and uh, Hyatt's talking to Norman on the phone saying, you know, he's getting, just getting prepared. He'll be ready. And the professor holds the phone out. And as Ray jumps into the phone and shrinks down, does his, his, his transportation via phone, he's like, a little traveling music, please. And so the professor starts singing, when the deep purple falls over sleep. Garden walls. I'm probably messing the, the melody of that up, but anyway, but the professor's singing to get Ray across. And <laughs> and again, we have Enrique warning that, you know, she doesn't know if they did the right thing by encouraging Ray to pursue the book deal. That, you know, he's endured so much heartache that she'd hate for him to go through it again. Because again, as we know, kind of the way she's been talking and moping the last few issues, and especially last issue when she saw Ray and Gene hugging that she has feelings for Ray more than just 
on a friend level. So, and again, as I said, we continue in this book with the, the, uh, introduction to Ray, I guess, because we have Norman explaining to the book publisher how Ray shrinks down and rides the phone lines. It rides electron stream over the phone lines and pops out. And again, we have Ray jumping out and transforming to full size, still in a suit. And as he, he appears outside, we get just, you can't really make him out, just a vague figure, but we got the window washer going, there's my man. And so they sit down around the table and couch to talk about it. Ray's going on about how, you know, how he wants to use this, this paperback to let the world know how the princess died and her people died because of the, the forest clearing and all that stuff. And, and so he, he, if they are going to do a paperback version of the book, he wants it to try to make the world be more aware uh, some of the stuff going on. And as they're talking, a guy comes walking in, yo, coffee boy. And the publisher, Griswold's like, I didn't order any. They say, weren't you outside cleaning the windows? And again, Norman's like, that's the cab you brought me here from the airport. And Humbug's like, stop, you're both right. And as he throws down the coffee cups, it explodes. A big pink smoke comes curling up out of the coffee cups. Ray's like, get back, something funny's going on. Oh, you don't know the half of it. And Ray, as quick as he is, he he shrinks down to, you know, a couple inch high, shrinking underneath the knockout gas, when suddenly Humbug grabs him in a bag, like, surprise! And Ray, you know, again, grows back to normal size, like, you think a canvas bag would hold me? He's like, not at all. But I was hoping you'd grow out of it. And you did. And he punches Ray and then leaves. And Ray falls around. Then Ray's questioning. He's like, well, he suckered punch. You know, he suckered me, but... Why did he duck out? You know, he didn't seem affected by the gas. And Ray's like, I got some air in here. So he kicks down the door and we see Humbug with the secretary tied to a chair, her mouth gagged as he pushes the chair into Ray. And as he takes off after Humbug, I like this, you're on bottom of page 16. A couple panels here. Uh, there's three panels here at the bottom. One of Ray saying he's going to go try to find him for her to call the police. He passes an office of some guy named Carlin. He's got a coffee cup on his desk. Says, "I love editing." Um, hmm. Warner Brothers, Carlin, editor. I wonder who this guy could be. <laughs> Obviously, a reference to Mike Carlin, uh, the editor of the Superman books, and he also edits some other book that I've been talking about. I can't remember which one it is. Huh? Maybe if I think about it, it'll come to me as I continue reading this story of Power of the Atom, written by Roger Stern and. Oh, who is that? Oh, yeah. Edited by Mike Carlin. <laughs> and that's one thing I was going to mention earlier, and I, I got sidetracked with the story. I, I do like the fact that, you know, at the time, again, I don't know when you're listening to this podcast for the future people, but at this point in time that the story took place, DC was owned by Warner Brothers. In fact, it still is today. But so I do like that this story has, and probably easier to use Warner Brothers since Warner Brothers owns DC and it doesn't give a, it doesn't give publicity to another company that doesn't, oh, that's not owned by Warner Brothers. And also it helps with any, you know, potential lawsuits or any complaints uh, of using real world publishing companies when, you know, the DC has Warner Brothers. So I, I do like that they use Warner Brothers and they, or I guess they could have made one up, but I, they used Warner Brothers. So I thought that was interesting. And I do like that they threw Ray walking by Mike Carlin's office. So I, I wonder if this is what his office looked like. We don't see much other than the corner of his desk, but you have to wonder if uh, 
he had that cup that says, I love editing, or if that was just thrown in there, it'd give you a tip. And one thing, again, just nitpicking, because again, it's such a great story. The phone and his name plate on his desk are both facing the same way. Uh, it seems like one would be facing towards Mike, the other would be facing towards the people with the sitting down, but... Just getting minor nitpick. Just getting this is such a great story. Uh, the next panel over, we see Humbug standing there, a fire extinguisher, waiting for Ray as Ray comes walking down the hall. And as Ray turns the corner, Humbug swings the fire uh, the fire extinguisher at Ray, misses him because Ray shrinks down and then grows big again, socking him in the face. And as he punches him in the face, his glasses and nose goes flying off. And Ray's like, nice try, but not fast enough. And the look here on top of uh, page 17, the, the look of horror on Ray's face, like, your your nose. <laughs> I just love the Ray's expression when, when he punches Humbug's nose clean off his face. He's like, your nose. And Humbug goes bouncing away. He's like, I know. But how does he smell? Terrible, of course. <laughs> and Ray's like, oh, fine. He's an agile lunatic. And so Ray jumps up, shrinks down, jumps up and grabs one of the, the lights hanging from the ceiling. Leaps in front of him, and again, I like this, is the rumbug comes running towards him. He jumps up to knock into a solar plexus to knock him down. He punches him, knocks him through a window of some guys. I'm assuming it's an art team. And Humbug takes one of their drawing tables and throws it at Ray's like, the production's going to be a lot off this month. And Ray's like, that blow would have knocked out most men. And that drawing table you up in, it must weigh at least 500 pounds. And so Ray's like, good, I don't have to pull any punches with this one. So, uh, so again, there's fighting rage using his, his size changing powers to shrink down again and jumps on top of the, the straight edge, whatever it is that, uh, humbug is using to fight with again, punches humbug again, knocks him across the room. And as humbug's laying next to a desk, Ray's like, okay, who are you? What's your game? And he's like, call me humbug. That's your first clue. Mine games are my business. And this one's for you. And Humbug shoves his finger, breaks the light, and shoves his finger into the, the light on the desk that he's laying next to, just saying electro- electrocuting himself. Just here, bottom page 19, he's like, bye! As, you know, you see electricity just crackling through him, and the body starts shaking, and you're to show how much electricity he's pumping through his body at this point. And when it's all said and done, Ray goes over, and he finds that it's an empty shell, basically. He's like, he was solid. At least he was when I when I hit him. And next day we cut to the police looking, you know, t- seeing what's going on, examining the scene. And Ray's explaining what happened. And he's like, you know, then he collapsed like a ruptured inner tube. I know it sounds crazy. And the police officer's like, you got that right. But all other witnesses saw the same thing. Another one's got a, a stick or something picking up the, the flesh bag, I guess, of Humbug going, yeah, nothing, just a bag of skin. And Ray asks if he can go by the lab to check it out. Maybe figure out where he came from. And he's like, hey, if up to me, you can take him now, but... Yeah, I make requested proper channels. And Ray and uh, Griswold come in and they're like, what the, you know, they're a little, they're a little lightheaded left from the gas. And Griswold's like, what a mess. This is unheard of. This this is a golden opportunity. When news gets out about the atom being attacked here, interest in the book will skyrocket. We'll have to include this sentence in the new book. And one of the cops always like publishers. And the other cop's holding the, the bag of skin. He's like, uh, Dave, you want to take this? And then we cut to Humbug again in his lair. With the voiceless voice, the voiceless voice, the disembodied voice, I guess is the best way to phrase that. It kind of admonishing Humbug saying, what made you think it would, you know, the best thing to do was attack the Adam in such a manner, attack him in such a public fashion. You know, we don't want such a public confrontation. We want it. He's like, shut up. Who's doing this? You or me? I see how big a challenge that would be. Now that I know, 
The next movie will be ever so much more fun. And he starts laughing. And our story ends with, it's not labeled as such, but basically an epilogue of Paul Hogan kind of doing a voiceover, thinking and fretting about how, you know, he must be crazy to think Gene could forget about Ray and all, you know, the again, he was a superhero. He has these powers. How can someone just, I guess, let that go or, you know, not miss that? And so he goes down out of a, a wall. He moves a couple bricks out of the wall and he pulls out a box and he has the Adam's original size changing belt. And he's like, got to face facts. There's only one way to compare with Superman. You have to fight fire with fire. And this is what I was talking about earlier with the, the uh, I don't say prelude, but the, uh, the, the reference earlier that something was going to happen with Paul being upset about Ray and Jean. And so we find out that he's going to start using, apparently, it looks like he's going to start using Ray's size changing belt. We'll have to wait and see what happens there. And then we end up with the next issue, Mightier Than the Sword. So again, great issue. The artwork, you know, I haven't talked much about the artwork, but the artwork in this is great. Um, yeah, just fantastic job on this book. I, part of the reason why I love this story, or this, this series, I want it to go longer than it did, but unfortunately, eh, you know. But anyways, and then in the uh, letter column, which is entitled Small Talk, just real quick, a, a gentleman named Dennis O'Fletcher from Rochester, New York, wrote in, uh, talking about how he liked the, the feeling of this. They're talking about issue six. And uh, what's his name? Dennis is talking about how he, he liked the, the feeling of the story similar to that of the originals. He wants to oh, be seeing more stories in this vein. And the editor, I'm assuming it's Mike, is like, probably now that we see how well issue six went down, his next question is, was that Ma Kenton panels five and six on page one? I'll go back and look. But they say, no, it's not. And th- his third question is, will the Adam be a member of Just Like Europe? And again, Mike says, no plans for this, but as yet, they haven't officially asked them either, like Martian Manhunter did for Just League International in last issue. <laughs> so, yeah, I just wanted to mention that letter real quick. But that's all really for this portion of What's in Head's Long Box. I was going to do another segment on uh, Geeking Out with Head about the upcoming announcement. I guess not upcoming. Let me try that again. With the recent announcement of James Gunn upcoming movies for the new DC Universe, but due to late hour and this episode to be out in a couple of days, and I need to finish a few things. Uh, we'll talk about that maybe next month. Maybe I'll see if I can get a guest on. Uh, but we're not going to end it here. We're going to do a qu- real quick... Mail time! So I haven't had anyone write in or make any comments. I really need to read on the air or anything. But I did want to say that we do have our Patreon page, patreon.com slash headcastnetwork. If you like what I'm doing on this or any of my other shows, please check out the Patreon page. And you can join great guys such as Gene Hendricks and Mark Ross, a.k.a. Clock Trent. And throw a few bucks in the tin. Again, I wanted to have a mail call just so I could announce those two guys because, again, I, I've been a little lax on giving them credit where credit is due. I give them credit over on the G.I. Joe podcast all the time, but I wanted to give them some credit over here also. So thank you two gentlemen for helping out over on Patreon. And also wanted to mention, while he's not actually a Patreon member yet, it looks like, we do have a follower of Brian Weebler. Please let me know if I'm mispronouncing your name, Brian, if you're listening to the show. Uh, Brian Weebler is checking out the Patreon, it looks like. So I do want to thank you very much uh, again for looking into it. And again, another shout out to Cosplay Dad, who used to be a Patreon, but he dropped 
support of the the page of the Headcast Network. I'm assuming just because for a while there, and again, it happens on and off. My, my publishing schedule was a little wonky. Again, I apologize for that. I'm working on resolving that. Hopefully, I've got something in the works now that will help me keep on a more regular basis with my shows. But we'll see. Anyways, that's going to do it for this episode of Head Speaks. Thank you very much for joining us here on episode 69, dudes! <laughs> yes, I know it's in the but I had to do it one last time. Anyways, uh, we'll see you next month here on Head Speaks where we talk about issue 11 of Power of the Atom, and hopefully we'll talk about some of James Gunn's announcements for the upcoming DC Universe movies and TV shows. Until next time, remember, Ed has spoken. Thank you for listening to another fantastic episode of Head Speaks. Hope you enjoyed it. If so, let me know. Drop me an email to head at headspeaks.com or visit our home at head.headspeaks.com. You can also visit and talk with me on Facebook and Google Plus, both under Head Speaks. You can also send an MP3 file with your thoughts and I can play that on the air. And you can also get more of me on my other podcasts. Be sure to listen to Task Force X, where monthly I look at John Ostinger's Suicide Squad and Paul Kuppenberg's Checkmate comics from the 80s and early 90s. Also, over on G.I. Joe, a Real American Headcast, my podcasting friends Ryan Daly and Kyle Benning, along with myself, are looking at all of the G.I. Joe, a Real American Hero comics, and related titles from Marvel and IDW. All of my headcasts are available on iTunes and Stitcher, along with the respective blogs and my main page at headspeaks.com. All, all comments, thoughts, and opinions expressed on Head Speaks are o- owned wholly by the speaker of said comments and do not express the opinions of Head Speaks. Unless, of course, I'm the one making the comments. Head Speaks, Task Force X, and G.I. Joe, Real American Headcast are all part of the Headcast family. So join us next month for another wonderful episode of Head Speaks. Until then, I'll see you in the funny pages. Good night.